I met him in London about 18 months ago, I told you that. Hugely impressive guy, uh, right on the money, a real journalist in every sense of the word. Uh, he's a writer and an investigative journalist, and he founded as a news website, 21stCenturyWire.com, which I use regularly. Uh, you often see him on Russia Today News, and he's also written for The Guardian and Infowars, amongst many others. And he presents a terrific programme every Sunday called The Sunday Wire. And you'll find that at 21stCenturyWire.com. And he had David Icke on with him on Sunday last, and it was a terrific conversation. If you missed that, get on there and, uh, and get it, 21stCenturyWire.com. It's a real pleasure for the first time, shamefully for the first time, uh, to welcome to this program, uh, Patrick Henningsen. Patrick, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Richie. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. Can you get me loud and clear? Yeah, you sound great. Marvellous. So do you. As, as a fellow broadcaster, you've got an amazing microphone there, so you sound absolutely tip-top. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on all the success with 21st Century Wire and everything you're doing, Patrick. It's wonderful. And the radio show is terrific. I'm not a sycophant. I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. Uh, it is brilliant. I've mentioned it before on the programme to people when they've asked me about other programmes to check out. Many of the listeners to this programme were previous listeners to your show anyway. And they came to me last, we could say. But look, it's brilliant stuff. I'm going to start off because a load of chatter on my Twitter feed for whatever, whatever you want to call it tonight about uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in London. Uh, the fact that a couple of thousand people turned out to protest that. Uh, there was a petition, as you well know, uh, which I think garnered 108,000 signatures. It's not really going to do any good because of international law. He can't be touched by any government that uh, he is visiting. But it's still a noble thing anyway. Um, when you see people turning out in their thousands to protest him, are you happy when you see it, Patrick? Or do you despair? Because do you think, well, God love them. Uh, they're doing the right thing getting out there. But what is it really going to highlight? Or what is it really going to do? What do you think? Well, I, I think people getting out and protesting about anything really is an expression of uh, of their thoughts and opinions, their desires, and uh, it's it's not popular in some quarters to uh, protest or to demonstrate or to criticize the state of Israel and its foreign policy and its domestic policy. It's very unpopular in some political quarters, and it's like the third the third rail on the London Underground. You know, you don't touch it <laughs> for fear of being electrocuted, but. I think it's important that uh, people get out. London's had a great tradition of standing up for the underdog, uh, the, the protests in favor of the Palestinian people over the years, uh, and also the anti-war demonstrations. London's always been a, a real central part of that global movement. People look to London for leadership uh, from people who are, you know, either political activists or people who are humanitarians or truthers or whatever, uh, people do look up to the people of Britain, not necessarily the government, but they do look at, at, at the great tradition of, of uh, activism and, uh, and that sort of thing in Britain and the United States as well. So, you know, as, as they are world leaders in politics and in economics, they're also looked upon to the rest of the world for leadership for things of these serious issues that we're talking about, for instance, like Syria. So it's, it's very important that people get out and be, be seen because the world's watching. Absolutely right. There's a really good article on 21stCenturyWire.com today written by Stuart Hooper. And it's about Netanyahu's response to the migrant crisis. And I understand, and again, I wouldn't have known this if it hadn't been for your website. And of course, the facts, 
you guys do real journalism. Um, my English could be better, of course, but you do you do it properly and you you, you fact check everything. He's been talking about building a fence. Tell us where he's been talking about building a fence somewhere uh, on Israel's border with Jordan. Is that right? Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> Israel's a dab hand at building walls, yeah. as, as you know. If you know anything about that country, they've built one of the longest, uh, most expensive, uh, continuous walls, which when they built it originally along the, the border of what is the West Bank proper uh, and the edge of uh, sort of settlements there on the extending off of uh, the w Western Israel um, or Eastern Israel, that's a, a wall, which they called an anti-terror wall. And the idea was they said, well, we want to keep the suicide bombers out. So they built quite a big wall in some places. We're talking about, you know, five, six meters high, thick with guard towers. Uh, people have done, B Banksy, the artist, has done some some great pieces of uh, protest art on that wall itself that a lot of people have probably seen over the years. Yeah, but yeah. It, to, to highlight what what that symbolizes. So as the Berlin Wall went down only a few years ago, then a new wall goes up. And it's not so much to keep the Palestinians out as it is to keep them in, uh, to keep them in that area. And so they can't get out. You, people don't realize in Palestine they have no rights. They they have no nationality. They have no uh, real citizen status. They're, it's an occupied territory. So they're like the equivalent of when, you know, the United States had territories in the West and the Indians were like persona non grata out in the West, and that's exactly how Israel classifies Palestinians, the natives in that region, uh, like the American Indians. So there's no difference at all. And just like the United States government at the time had put the Indians into Bantu stands and reservations uh, to keep them in, uh, to fence them in, the Israeli government has done exactly the same thing in Israel. So. So Israel does what Israel does best, which is build walls and uh, create giant sort of concentration camps in some cases. But they want to build a wall along the Jordanian border uh, for fear of flood of Syrian uh, it's amazing, migrants. amazing, isn't it? There's two things it, about that. One, can, can I just... Yeah. Two things. One, I was going to interview a gentleman called Mohammed Kamal earlier this week, but because electricity is intermittent in Gaza and it keeps obviously... It's not reliable at all. The interview broke down a couple of times when we had him on live. Now, I took a little bit of a risk, but I have interviewed people in Gaza before and it's gone okay. And God love him. Uh, I spoke to him then the following day. And I said, let's try and pre-record it. And he gave me a couple of landlines, but the quality of the landlines is really bad as well. And he was so apologetic and he said, oh, the landlines, Richie, are just as bad here. I, felt, I, I couldn't have felt any worse, Patrick. But then thinking, and, and you know, sometimes you put your foot in your mouth and you don't really mean to do it. I said to him, I know some people really well who work for Defence for Children International in Ramallah. Why don't you go and see them? I'll arrange it. And you can use their phone or their Skype because it's really good. Like an idiot, I said that to him. And he said, dear Mr. Ritchie, we're not allowed to go there, he said. We're in prison here. And I said, Jesus yep. Christ. I said, look, I said, I'm really sorry. I did know that I should have known better. And he said, no, no, no. He said, no, you're thinking on your feet. He said, it's a good idea, but we can't get out of there. And I'm not a big softy and I'm not somebody who looks for attention. I kind of had a bit of a cry after that, you know. I was thinking he can't even go a few miles. They won't let him. A charity worker, a young boy. And you mentioned this wall on Jordan. 
You know Israeli men and women, uh, Patrick, probably more than I do. I know a lot of Jewish men and women in Britain and in Ireland who despise what Israel does just as much as you and I do. How can anybody want to live in a society with a maniac in charge who's talking about building walls all around us, keeping us locked in against invisible enemies? Do any Israel, Do you come across Israelis in your travels and in your writings that actually say, we don't want to live like this? Yeah, absolutely. For I have for many years. Uh, it's it's becoming increasingly unpo- unpopular. We're talking specifically about the extremist right wing uh, Zionist version of the Israeli experience, if for lack of a better term. But you know, Israel's changed a lot over the years. You know, granted, we could have a really long discussion about the the legitimacy of the state of Israel from its inception in 1948, and what Israel had to do in terms of ethnic cleansing and displacing uh, Palestinians and Arabs in order to create the state of Israel. We can have a long discussion about that, and the history books are very clear about what happened and to who. And but moving forward, it's important that you know Israel has been established, uh, for like it or not, it's a it's a it's a nation state recognized by the United Nations and everything else has people has citizens who have passports. So it has to be uh, engaged with uh, diplomatically and politically in order to get to some kind of a solution. And Israel's changed a lot over the years. It used to be more, I I would say, the uh, identity of being Israeli was more along the lines of the sort of kibbutz identity, the, you know, making the desert green and everyone banding together. And then this kind of extreme... uh, extremist militant Zionism really took over uh, in starting from the 1980s and to a point now where it's just completely uh, out of control, in my opinion, uh, in terms of its uh, aggressive rhetoric. And it's just absolutely unforgiving uh, policy towards anybody uh, non-Jewish within Israel's orbit. And um, they'll claim that they have security issues and interests in they need to protect themselves because uh, the rest of the Arab world wants to push them into the Mediterranean, as they say. But at no point does anybody want to. I, I think it, it came close under uh, when uh, dur- during when Anwar Sadat was president of Egypt, and uh, during that sort of Camp David period, it came close to some sort of detente, but. The forces outside of the region that really control that region, which are the Anglo-American influence, um, has also ma- maintained a permanent war footing for Israel. You know, by the sheer financial aid that it received from the United States for, for starters, the almost four billion in military funding per per year, and you add that up over the last twenty or twenty-five or thirty years, and that's a lot of money. That can buy a lot that's of hardware. It's an enormous amount of money, isn't it? So, yeah. one hundred eight thousand people, well-meaning, asked for the British government to arrest Netanyahu. Of course, it couldn't possibly happen. But that's a lot of people. Now we talk about sanctioning Israel, and if ever a government deserved to be sanctioned because of the way it violates international law, ignores. Uh, international law ignores its neighbours who tell it that it's doing wrong and it shouldn't do what it does it shouldn't um, build settlements it shouldn't brutalise the Palestinians it shouldn't put children in prison uh, without telling their parents and all of the horrible things the blockade 
How effective could that 108,000 be, Patrick, if they started a lobbying campaign where they started to badger and harass and annoy the bejesus out of their local MPs to say, we want action against that country? What do you think? Well, I don't know how effective that would be in the United States, that type of a lobbying campaign. But in in Britain, it would probably be pretty effective, quite frankly, uh, because maybe the, the financial lobbies... Uh, don't have nearly the the size, the budgets, and the clout in Britain that they would in the United States. In the United States, uh, how you would do is that hundred and hundred some odd thousand people would all put it, uh, you know a thousand dollars into a, a fund, <laughs> an endowment fund, yeah, yeah. and then start buying off congressmen and senators to take a different. So basically, it, the Israeli lobby will write out a check, literally almost to every single uh, congressman and senator, even in the ones that lose they still get a check, and that buys their loyalty to some degree. But if you could write a bigger check out in America to another uh, sort of way of thinking or interest, um, that would be probably the significant turning point, and uh, that's not easy to do. And the other thing is the second biggest lobby in Washington now growing is really the Saudi Arabian lobby, and their interests are absolutely aligned with Israel's interest. If you talk about the Iranian nuclear deal, they're absolutely in alignment with Israel and the Israeli lobby and therefore the whole of the uh, right wing of the Republican Party all together. Saudi Arabia, the Israelis and the Republicans in one little happy sort of playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a problem. That's a lot of money, a lot of power and money talks in Washington. And until that changes, uh, we're going to see this continue, uh, the backing of these types of really – uh, policies that make absolutely no sense in the long term, but are all sort of um, predicated on money uh, that's being donated and pumped into the political system. And in Britain as well, they have a financial lobby. It's powerful, and you have BICOM, and you have conservative friends of Israel, and these are very influential groups, and they do have the ear of David Cameron and everybody else in his cabinet and most MPs. But uh, it's not nearly as strong uh, it's very hard to break the back of this in America. This is a very strong and well-financed lobby. Well said, and, and we could do an entire program on the revolving door system where some of these senators and congressmen and women, eventually, when they lose their their chair at the table, end up going to work for the companies who uh, you know, bomb, bombard them with money. Anyway, we could do a massive show on that. Just a couple of quick emails that have come in. Uh, Lynn Wright, Lynn, how are you? Nice to hear from you. Uh, perhaps the Israelis are building defence while Netanyahu is over here so that he can't get back in, says Lynn. <laughs> they might well be, Lynn, because even those who believe in his policies can't stand them. He's detestable. He really is. Uh, Andre was on to say the creation of Israel in 48 goes in sync with the creation of the Federal Republic of Germany. I'm sure that in 48, our foundation, because Andrea is German, our foundation law was finally accepted by the Allies. Is this a coincidence? What does Patrick think? I should know this, Andrea, because I'm a history graduate, but I don't, I'm afraid. Uh, when I say I don't, I'm not sure about the dates. I think you, you might very well be right. We'll get Patrick's opinion in a second, but I want to stay on um, Iran for a second. Patrick, do you, I, I believe that some of those involved in the Iranian nuclear deal are well-meaning and well-intentioned. However, I believe what the agenda might want to do is make it look like there's an accord with Iran, um, agree a deal with Iran, triumphantly, you know, 
a brag about it, talk about it. We've achieved this. This is, you know, a long way to uh, going towards peace in the region. It's wonderful and all that. But I worry, because of what I believe is their long-term agenda, Patrick, that this is really nonsense. I don't believe Iran has any interest in acquiring a nuclear bomb. I don't believe there's any proof that they want one. But I believe the system is thinking, right, let's tell people we've done a deal with them. Because we look like the good guys. So in three years' time, we can then start telling lies about Iran violating the terms of that deal. They're not letting the inspectors in. We have intelligence that says they're doing stuff that they said they wouldn't do. And I worry about that. What do you think? I, I agree with you 100%. That would be my assessment. Look, the, the important thing to understand here with regards to the Iranian nuclear deal is that uh, you know whether you you know whether you're for the deal or against the deal, whether you want to see uh, an international uh, peace accord, which the P5 plus one have you know offered here with regards to this deal with the United States as as a major partner. Now, whether you want to see that or not, the reality is that that can't peace cannot be achieved by a mere chess match because the fact of the matter is there are forces whether this deal goes through or not whether it was even uh, started the negotiations were started in the first place if they weren't started and we'd be at the status quo right now in other words you know continued crippling sanctions a lot of rhetoric against Iran a lot of pressure uh, militarily and politically on that country there's still a forces in the West and in Israel who apps and Europe who absolutely are want to uh, push that agenda forward, which is to confront Iran, and Saudi Arabia would probably be one of the main uh, players in that agenda because they do not want to see Iran as a successful economic country in that region because when they become a successful economic country, then they become a political player. And when they come, become a political player, then all of a sudden the paradigms which are set into place and have been enjoyed by the major players in that region for quite some time now will have to shift. They will have to change to accommodate the reality of an Iran uh, that is uh, a formidable uh, diplomatic force, a formidable economic and political voice in that region. And that scares the living daylights out of the kingdoms, the theocracies across the Persian Gulf, who've enjoyed a, a nice uh, dominant time at the top of the pyramid. Uh, at the pleasure of uh, Her Majesty and Washington. So that will all change. And some people do not want to see that happen. Whatever it takes, do not let Iran get back on its feet economically, because if that happens, then they no longer can completely call the shots. It's an oxymoron to even suggest that Iran, even if it had a nuclear warhead, that it would stick it on an intercontinental ballistic missile or any other delivery device and detonate it to kill, as Ted Cruz said this morning on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building, to kill six million Jews. Yeah, yeah, Again, yeah, 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 So this is yeah. what Ted Cruz said in front of a crowd of thousands of people this morning, live on national TV in the United States, that they wanted to kill six million Jews. So the fact of the matter is, if they did that, more than six million Palestinians, perhaps, potentially, would die as well. So it's an oxymoron to even suggest that Iran, being the number one friend of the Palestinians for many years would even consider such a diabolical That's right. uh, plan. So it's it's all a lie. It's it's all mythology. It's all fantasy, which is spun up, given a, uh, some political legitimacy by, unfortunately, the U.S. Republican Party, uh, the far right in the United States, the Israeli lobby, Israel, and all of its tentacles that reach into Europe. They've given this 
mythology, this fantasy credence to, to, that adult men or women would stand up and say such things on TV that have no chance of happening. And to use that fear uh, on a mythical scenario, uh, to use that to spin up an extremist, what I think is an extremist foreign policy agenda, based on lies. It, it, it's complete madness. We are at a point now with the rhetoric that we haven't seen. We're at a real crossroads right now. I would say that this, and, and there's a populist political movement that's surging around the world where people are tired of politics. It, we're, that, that Bob Dylan song, Watchtower, or the Jimi Hendrix covered, the lyrics of that song are applicable to what, exactly what you're seing. Uh, play out right now today. You're absolutely this is right. It's like 19, 1968 in the 21st century right now. Right in front of our eyes. It's 26 minutes past the air. I'm going to read out a couple of tweets and a couple of emails. They're coming in thick and fast. There's a question in there for uh, Patrick. Zen, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the refugee crisis, the coverage of it in the media, and what Patrick thinks it's all about. But before we uh, do that, a couple of quick tweets. Sandra Douglas on Twitter. Sandra, how are you? My local MP is a member of the Friends of Israel group, so there's no point in lobbying him, says Sandra. No, there isn't, Sandra, but lobby somebody else. Lobby somebody who isn't, I would suggest. Martin Houston says, surely pretty much the whole of Congress needs to be sentenced to life in prison for taking bribes. You won't get many arguments here. Uh, Wayne was on to say, Israel should be blocked from trade with the United Kingdom, as well as diplomatic visits, and they should be condemned on the national stage, the international stage for war crimes, says Wayne. JP is in Manchester. Yemen hosted refuge for over 246,000 fleeing war before the US and Saudi bombing. Now Yemen, Yemenis are fleeing too. That's an absolute fact, says JP. And Sean emailed in this question, uh, Patrick. Um, I'll, if we can get a quick answer from you on this one, that will allow me to take a quick break. Then we can come back and we can get straight into the refugee crisis. Uh, Sean says, Richie, Patrick is a champion. What does he think about setting up camps and aid for refugees in Israel, forcing a united front of superpowers to help another race of needy people apart from the Jews? Richie, I know it won't happen, but why? I don't know what you're asking there, Sean. Are you asking why Israel is not trying to uh, pull off a public relations coup here? Is that what you're asking? Why are they not letting in refugees to look like, you know, the great bastion of hope in the Middle East. Is that what you're asking? Because if that's what you are asking, that's a bloody good question. Patrick, what do you think? Uh, I, I, it's going to be a cold, personally, it'll be a cold day in hell before we ever see that happen. That, I mean, considering what Israel has on its hands with regards to the Palestinians that are fenced in, in Gaza, for instance, and most of the West Bank, it's not going to happen. It should happen. That would be a, a slam dunk for public relations for Israel. But uh, do they do they care about their neighbors really, or would they like to see the backs of their neighbors? Eventually, it, often we this the case is that we don't see Israel having great relationships with their neighbors um, in in very uh, productive or constructive uh, way at all. It's it's never it's never really happened. They've attacked most of their neighbors um, militarily, so. I don't know. It would be a great thing. You know, if you consider the amount of people that helped uh, Jews fleeing Europe during the Second World War, uh, the amount of Christians that helped Jews and so forth, it would be a great gesture if Israel was to uh, help those uh, Christians or Muslims being persecuted by uh, ISIS militants. 
but you know we can go into a deep conversation of why that's probably not going to happen either um but uh, that's for another conversation for another day patrick thanks for staying with us we'll take a brief break it's only 90 seconds when we come back then we'll have about 20 minutes we'll get into the refugee crisis patrick henningson on the line to us from 21stcenturywire.com and a lot more besides to be fair to patrick right very quick breaks and back with more Welcome back. 29 minutes to the top of the air. Patrick Henningsen is on the line. Patrick is the founder of 21stCenturyWire.com. It's a terrific news source. It really is real journalism. Get on there. Uh, as well as the many other things he does, he presents the Sunday Wire every Sunday. Now, links to the programme, including past programmes, are on uh, the website. And Sunday, uh, just gone a couple of days ago, uh, Patrick had a terrific chat with uh, our own David Icke about many things, including the real reason behind the mass movement of refugees across Europe. Patrick, welcome back and thanks for staying with me. That was a terrific uh, conversation, very thought-provoking conversation you had with David on your programme. What are your own thoughts on it as you're looking at the 24-hour news channels and you're seeing desperate people uh, fleeing genuine absolute chaos and devastation? Um, but maybe thinking that there's something a little bit more to the stories than the news stories are giving us, the news channels are giving us. What are your own thoughts on it as you watch it? Well, to me, the first thing that comes to my mind is I was talking about this back in uh, 2012 and 2013. I experienced it firsthand in, when I was in Lebanon in 2013 uh, with refugees and children from Syria and families. Uh, and Lebanon has absorbed, I would say, it's very difficult to give an official figure, but uh, probably well in excess of 2 million refugees from neighboring Syria. Now, you have to consider how small Lebanon is. It's the size of a few counties, in, even in Great Britain. So it's, it's very small. And for them to absorb that many people in that country, and they're still functioning and they're still getting on with it, okay? Now, they've also absorbed a lot of Palestinian refugees, some of whom have been in uh, Palestinian camps with you know, no no national status for three, four, five generations, or no, not five generations, but three or four generations since since uh, Israel was created in 1948. So the uh, the Lebanese have dealt have to dealt with deal with this, and there's been no tears and no cries of crisis from the world about Lebanon's trials and tribulations uh, dealing with the destabilization of the neighboring Syria. And there's also millions of refugees in uh, Jordan and Turkey. And we're talking about huge refugee camps uh, just over the border in Turkey, well-funded as well. I think uh, figures that I've seen uh, up to $6 billion spent on building and maintaining these immense refugee camps. So this is not a new problem. And just because the news crews have been very well positioned in hung places like uh, Budapest and in Hungary and, of course, uh, the, the boats that have been going to Greece, some from Libya, some from Syria, uh, but the news crews have been very well positioned to create a story, which is like a crisis is, is really a media event these days. So it's, there could be real crises going on all over the place. There could be a crisis going on in Lebanon. There could be a crisis, a refugee crisis in Jordan. But if the Western media doesn't choose to create the story of the crisis, then the crisis therefore does not exist and does not have any legitimacy as a political priority. 
I'm very skeptical, as David Icke is, and I think David's analysis is pretty spot on. Uh, he's rarely wrong about these types of things if you look back at uh, his commentary on a lot of big issues, but that, that there's more here than meets the eye. And I see this absolutely uh, as this is meant to be the straw that breaks the camel's back uh, in terms of expanding the uh, mil military intervention uh, in Syria to sort of give the final death blow to the government in Damascus and really send that region sp in spiraling into a tailspin, but also to confront or to draw Russia possibly uh, into the mix to and then to c give uh, the West what it needs to may have that major confrontation uh, with Russia on neutral ground uh, after they I believe they've been unsuccessful achieving their goals and confronting Russia in the Ukraine. It hasn't gone completely to plan. Things are going a little bit pear-shaped there as we speak with another Maidan crisis brewing. But Syria is is and always has been uh, the, the sort of central, that, that'll be the sort of crown jewels of these, the you know, the world of Zbigniew Brzezinski or the sort of completely globalist NATO conquering of, of that region for once and for all. Do you think, I, I again, and I could be wrong, and, and I'm not at all being in any way modest, I'm being honest, you um, have been watching that region and writing about it far longer than I have, and you're better placed to, to give an opinion than me, there's no doubt about that. I've felt that, I mean, we knew, people like you and people like me, we knew that as far back as 2008, 2009, dark actors were inside Syria stirring up opposition to Bashar al-Assad. We know that. Do you think, Patrick, that the, the lunatics behind all of this, they really thought that the jihadists that are now called ISIS, they really thought that these guys could basically uh, usurp Assad and take over Syria. And that's what they wanted, because then they could say, oh, look at these crazy ISIS guys, they're now in charge of Syria, we have to go in. ISIS can't seem, or not ISIS, but the, 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 the people known as ISIS, the jihadists that we've given money and weapons to, known as ISIS, can't get, they're not good enough, really. And they're not capable, really, of overthrowing Bashar al-Assad. So what we're seeing now is basically second prize. Um, they're now saying, even today on Sky News and BBC 24, experts were wheeled out to say, oh, you've got to really pity those Syrian people. Everybody's killing them. It's ISIS and it's Assad. We're going to have to take a really, really harder line on this. And this is after they talked about airstrikes. So obviously they're talking about sending uh, troops in on, on the ground there. Do you think that's what happened? Uh, the lunatics that they trained and armed to overthrow Assad couldn't do it. So this is second best now. What do you think? Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if even they believed that they could overthrow Assad, um, the people who were training, arming, including the United States and Britain, who were doing this in Jordan and sending them off on their merry little way into Syria, uh, armed and ready to go, and from Turkey, and been doing that for years. But if we, if, you know, if we talk about this from the point of view of how a Westerner looks at the region, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. But if you if you take the view the viewpoint of what Israel's uh, strategic aspirations are, which they have published in papers like written by the Henry Jackson Society, for instance, was to eliminate what what they believed was their number one threat or rival militarily in the region, which was Syria and the Syrian Air Force, uh, with two hundred odd 
250-odd fighter jets and well-trained Russian-trained pilots and so forth, that to eliminate that will be absolutely paramount to them achieving uh, overall regional strategic goals, and those will be dovetailed with generally what Washington wants too. And if you think about it, Syria is the middleman. So Syria is the one great ally that's helped to keep uh, uh, Hezbollah uh, next door in Lebanon, to, to, you know, a great friend of Hezbollah and a, a great supporter. So if Hezbollah is uh, attacked by Israel or confronted, then Syria will always ally with them, this government that you have in Syria, and the same with Iran. So if you take Syria out and you erase this government in Syria and you erase this state of Syria and break it up into smaller states, maybe five or six or three or four even, smaller sort of states with a few Bantu stands in there with refugees and so forth, then all of a sudden Iran becomes extremely isolated. Uh, Syria itself is gone, and therefore Hezbollah is completely exposed. And that really, even beyond Syria, Syria is happy to have detente with, with Israel. They've had one of the longest maintained uh, uh, recognized peace accords over the Golan Heights uh, for many, many, many years. And, of course, that's all kind of gone now to the wall. That's pretty much history. What Israel would like is to establish a buffer zone and increase uh, its uh, holdings of the Golan Heights and to reestablish uh, a buffer zone in southern Lebanon, which it once had but lost because it got kicked out by Hezbollah. So, again, if and, and you could say the same with down the road with the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. So Israel's objectives have always been to increase its uh, land holdings and, and therefore, it believes its security buffer zone. And it could even move that forward to Jordan as well. Who knows what will break out in Jordan? What sort of instability might break out there in 10 years? Absolutely so, right. Can I just say this? That answers Sean Bluer's question. Sean is a teacher in Manchester and an NUT delegate, union delegate. And she had tweeted, who wants Syria and why? And Patrick has answered that. And I'm in total agreement with that, whether... You know, my whole thing about whether they wanted ISIS to win or not was always coming back to this. Uh, there's no two ways about that. Sean also asked the question, why aren't ISIS attacking Israel? Now, this comes up time and time again on programs like this. Why haven't ISIS, uh, the, 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 the caliphate guys who want to establish the caliphate, why haven't they got, gone after uh, Israel? I mean, we know why. Do you want to answer that? Uh, because... I think they, they want to, don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. Yeah. If you consider that Israel and Saudi Arabia's uh, diplomatic coordination, its its interests are absolutely aligned right now uh, in the region. And so as Israel does, Saudi does, and vice versa. So if you, if you understand that Saudi Arabia and some of the other GCC monarchies are some of the, the biggest sponsors of the al-Nusra and the ISIS terror brigades that are currently running amok, in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere, then you would also it would stand to reason that they will not be uh, ever uh, attacking Israel. The only attack against Israel might be if this phase of the destabilization was completed, then we could have a kind of a Boko Haram situation with uh, some new political, more political videos being released, and they say death to Israel and blah, blah, blah. And if, if that would be because Israel would need an excuse to basically obliterate some portion of Syria or something, um, or Iraq perhaps, and that it's all that theater would be unleashed in the media sphere, which they've done very effectively with Yemen, with Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, 
to uh, unleash them back in January during the wake of the Charlie Hebdo attacks. And that helped to soften the ground for what we saw later in Yemen. And we pointed this out when it was happening. Uh, but of course, the mainstream media is a little bit slow to the take uh, on some of these things because they're going along the official dialectic. So there's no way they would ever be able to tell you what's going to happen next month because they're totally dialed in to whatever the sort of uh, establishment narratives are. And we're, we're meant to just follow along and, you know, say, oh, my God, another crisis. Oh, my goodness. You know, what do we do now? We need, we need to do something. We need to act fast. We need to do something. We need to keep these migrants from coming to Europe. We need to, we need to hit ISIS harder back in Syria. And this is how the dialectic goes. So if you watch, listen to David Cameron and uh, any U.S. leader, and they're basically giving the, the, the narrative and the, the dialectic that we're meant to, to fall into and to see things through their eyes, through their perspective, through their narrative. And therefore, we become helpless, and therefore, we can only react to crises, and therefore, nothing, uh, we, we know we have no empowerment whatsoever in this conversation politically. It's almost like, well, you know, it's just out of control, and you can't do anything about it. And Well, don't worry, we'll take care of it. It's funny you mentioned helpless, because I was going to mention the word helpless. My next question to you was, knowing what you know, and what I believe, I believe what you know and what you've said is true. I did a, a, a small editorial on this last week as well about the real reason behind driving so many people out of their countries and into Europe and beyond. And I wasn't just parroting David. I felt this myself for a long time that, that this was happening. But at the same time, I talked a lot last week, Patrick, about the paradox, about the fact that these are beautiful, wonderful people like us and like our families that are completely innocent victims in all of this and they have nothing now, you know, sold up everything they've had to try and get across uh, to a country where bombs are not raining down on them, where they're not going to be killed and you have to help them. So do you feel helpless then? Do you feel trapped by the system? Because the system wants all of this. We know why they're doing it but at the same time we, as decent people, want to make sure that those men, women and children have food and they have a roof over their heads. What do you think? I think I think if you look at it in terms of you're just reacting, you're constantly in reaction mode, which is where our politicians want us to be, just reacting, 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 when, when they themselves know what the long-term agenda is, well, some of them anyway. If you look at history, though, we even though we don't have a seat on the Privy Council or we don't have a seat in national security or private little fireside chats at checkers between uh, major players, we can actually figure out what's going on by looking at history. And if you look at history, uh, any any empire throughout history, and this is why I laugh when Donald Trump or anybody says, we need to build a wall, we need to stop America, lock our borders down, you know, keep migrants out. Um, and the same in Europe, because Britain has always been proud. The average, even the average black cab driver, uh, when they hear rule Britannia, they, they feel the patriotism surging up their Kundalini spine. Okay. And the same with America when they hear Amer American patriotic songs and they see the flag. They like the idea of empire. Brit British like the, the historical idea of empire. That makes them feel great, uh, in, the, in their place in the world today, in the 21st century, the past victories and the past grandeur of the empire. It's a feeling of pride for even the working class British. So they love the idea of empire. 
but they don't understand, many of them, that part of the deal that comes with being an empire, whether you're the United States empire or the EU empire or the British empire or the NATO empire, part of the deal with empire is that you will have open borders and you will have migrant crises because when you go and project power overseas, there are uh, cause and effect. There are ramifications that reverberate. Eventually, those people will come to settle back home. Look at Britain. What is Britain but a tapestry of former colonial uh, victories all over the world, and communities have been established. Now, what Britain has done very cleverly is it's created uh, through its its immigrant communities in Britain have uh, kept the colonial system effectively in place by creating this uh, lifeline between the mother country of the empire and all these sort of former co colonies. But the 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 people in who educate their children in Britain or in Paris or in United States, and those people will be the next leadership class back in those countries. All these Syrians that you see or Afghans coming surging into Europe, they those kids will be the uh, the sort of enclave of Afghanistan, Syria, or whatever country they're coming from uh, to be influential in the next generation. So from an intelligence point of view, it's brilliant. You've already got your lifeline set up for the next generation. You're going to put them through your school system, put them through your whole political system, and then you have an automatic influential lifeline to help to manage and control those far-off countries for future generations. That's how the system's always worked. Uh, and that's how the system is working right it's now. It's working right now. Uh, Jason said Cameron wants to solve this insanity with more insanity. As we know, the British people accept insanity like democracy. Now, there's been several tweets. Uh, one from um, uh, Carl in Canberra in Australia. One from Sean, uh, who I've mentioned already in Manchester, and one or two others. Patrick, for those of us who feel absolutely powerless in the face of this as we watch this unfold as we know it was planned and as we know it's meant to happen what's the solution what can we do about that that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question what can the average man or woman do that can affect some sort of change and prevent this sort of madness i think that there's very little it, it is very very much escalated to a point now where there's been so much obfuscation, there's been so much confusion, so much intentional uh, deflecting away from the core um, issues that have caused the problem. In other words, the bombing of, and destruction of Libya, that began the migrant crisis, okay? And the second one is the support of the destabilization of the non-civil civil war, which has been taking place in Syria by Britain, by France, by the United States. Uh, so th this is the core to, of the problem. The only thing that we can do, I believe, is people need to try to find their way through all the, the, the fog of a lot of the intentional confusion, which is being done by, by mainstream media pundits, who quite frankly, are, many of them are just too lazy uh, to, to use any critical thinking skills and to drill down. And many of them are invested in the official narrative which, as you mentioned before, with regards to Syria, goes right back to 2008 and nine. The real causes of the instability there was not the Arab Spring. It was external forces that destabilized the country. And when, if people can understand that and convey that to their MPs, to convey that to their uh, whoever, what, whatever media they're interacting with, whether it be in the comment sections of uh, Daily Mail articles or your show or whatever, to 
reiterate that, keep putting that point across. This is how you're going to win the war of reality because consensus reality, if you listen to the BBC, they want to say, well, it's just a horrible humanitarian disaster and we need to do something about it. But they don't ever want to hold the government to task for starting the problem in the first place. And when that happens, then we're going to see change in this world. Until that happens, then we're just going to go roll from one crisis to the next. And who knows, it could, it's very dangerous right now because this could easily spin into a, uh, a major major military disaster or confrontation that will have huge ramifications. Whether nuclear weapons are fired or not, it's going to increase security at home and we're going to have less rights tomorrow than we have even have today. That is the ramifications of where this is heading. And people need to wake up to it. Patrick, that's um, as good a place as any to leave it because we're just about up on time. We've got to take another wee break and then wrap the program up. People do, if you haven't already, I'm sure you have, but if you haven't checked out 21stCenturyWire.com, do it now. Uh, and as I said, Patrick's uh, program, The Sunday Wire, uh, links to that are on the website uh, and previous shows. It's really well worth your while checking it out if you haven't before. Mate, I really enjoyed having you on. Thanks for coming on and, and, and chatting to us. Uh, you've got an open invitation to come back anytime you want, mate. Do come back. Anytime, Richie. Just give me a shout. I'm, I'm more than happy. I, uh, I'm a big fan of your your show, and I love your audience because I interact with people who listen to your show every day. So they're the same readers we have are the same listeners to your show. So uh, there's a huge overlap there. Certainly is, my friend. Thanks for doing what you do. Talk again real soon, Patrick. Thanks, Richie. Bye for now. Patrick Henningsen on the line to us there from London. Great to chat with him. 21stCenturyWire.com, as Patrick said. Many of you uh, use the website anyway. It's a terrific source of news. Um, I use it regularly. I've quoted from it. I've read articles from it on the programme in the past, and I'll continue to do so again in the future.